Olaso. Danny has told me that the uh, podcasts are now uploaded onto the internet. So I'm speaking to the people listening by podcast uh, in completely circular reasoning. You can listen now. But of course, they already knew that. Um, but we are addressing not only the people in this room, but also people listening from afar. So I hope there's benefit from what we are doing here, the teachings, the discussions. And also, insofar as the people who are listening by podcasts are able to make some donation, um, that would be very welcome. And all of your do donations, 100%, go to supporting yogis who are devoting themselves full-time to practice. So that's where you will go. So if you'd like to support people engaging with such dedication to practice, that would be very helpful, because some people have no money at all. Hola, so. Enough of that. So now we proceed back to the mindfulness of breathing. And the balancing act that we'll venture into today is an enormously important one. It's a maker or breaker kind of issue. And that is, we'll note from the practice two days ago that it was a balance between sustaining your current level or your initial level of clarity while relaxing more and more deeply. So we can do one or the other of those quite easily. Sustaining current level of clarity, no problem. Relaxing, no problem. Just lie down and kind of chill. But doing the two simultaneously, of having a deepening sense of relaxation and not getting groggy, not spacing out, not getting dull, that's something that doesn't come naturally. So that was the phase, the initial level, the entry level, for mindfulness of breathing that we began to explore last Saturday. And today we'll take on another balancing act. And once again, it's not something that comes natural. I don't think it's generally taught at all. That is, not in the, kind of the mundane world. The only place I know that it's taught is in a contemplative setting, and even there it's often not taught, or it's overlooked, or what have you. And that is, we're moving on to the second of the three qualities of shamatha, namely developing the stability, the coherence, the continuity of voluntary attention. You're maintaining that coherence, that focus, through time, and we'll simply call that with one word, stability. Well, people know how to concentrate. They don't need to come to Phuket or to the Mind Center or receive meditation instruction to learn how to concentrate. People know how to concentrate. We know how they do it. They furrow the brow, they tense up, and then they really concentrate. And psychologists have been studying this for more than a century, that when people become very focused and sustain their focus, many people can, some people can quite well, and virtually all of them get exhausted in the process, drained, starting getting stressed out, and the harder they concentrate and the longer they do so, the more wasted they get. Okay? So there's a lot of research behind that, and we know whole professions, I won't go into a whole Dharma talk on that, where such really heightened, sustained attention is required, but it also does tend to be very depleting. So to develop samadhi obviously requires such very focused, composed, collected, unified, and sustained attention, but it can't be such that we're getting tapped out in the process. And so this is the second balancing act, and that is through this initial phase, we began to explore two days ago. We learn how to really loosen up, mellow, get soft, relax, get at ease. As we move into the phase for today, the whole idea is what, that quality of relaxation and ease, don't lose it. So pre previously, don't lose your initial level of clarity. Here, 
subtle body, speech, and mind, and the natural states get really mellow, soft, relaxed. But then we'll introduce an element of discipline, of discipline, of really starting to subdue the wildly discursive mind. And the balancing act is then to explicitly enhance the stability of attention without losing the sense of relaxation. It's a skill that I have to say it's indispensable. If you don't develop that skill, even if you go from, uh, go from here with very strong motivation, excellent ethics, very strong discipline, a lot, of, a lot of energy, you go off into retreat, but you don't master that, you'll burn out within a matter of weeks. There's a lot of experience behind that. right? And it's just because of like, pushing, 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 and then you find, well, you'd like to meditate eight hours, but you can't. It's six hours. No, six hours is too much. It's four hours. It's three hours. Oh, I can't do it at all. And then you come out of retreat. Now, maybe that's the best thing for you, but if you haven't learned how to relax and introduce the discipline while maintaining the relaxation, you're on a short fuse. You're on a short fuse. It won't work out very well. And I know on the basis of my first long retreat, that's exactly what I did. I was 30 years old, no pain, no gain, you know, California 49er attitude, let's go get them, and it just doesn't work. There's a nice analogy. I like it anyway. And I'm drawing from Tibetan tradition of parenting, which I think actually has a lot to be said for it. And my understanding is that with traditional Tibetan parents, now the younger ones I don't know, but the traditional, because I, I was brought up with traditional Tibetans, raised in Tibet, that when they're raising their, their infants up to the age of two, maybe even the age of three, no matter what the child does, maybe it's screaming and hollering, throwing a tantrum, throwing food, Whatever the child is doing, they never reprimand, not for the first couple of years. They never scold, they never discipline, they never punish, never speak in a loud voice. You know, I mean, there are obviously exceptions, but that is the ideal. There's no, there is no place for that for a baby. The baby can't understand what you're saying anyway. And so, when the child is acting up and so forth, the general response from the mothers is to soothe, to comfort, to nurture, to hold, to cuddle, to get the baby to calm down. But in the most gentle way, soothing way, maybe singing, maybe reciting, Om Mani Peme Hum, Om Mani Peme Hum, Om Mani Peme Hum, but it's really soft. And just get the child to calm, to soothe, and not feel threatened or defensive, right? Now, when the child gets to two, three years old, the child can talk, the child's being naughty, Right? doing something a child should, shouldn't, shouldn't be doing, then one introduces some discipline. Like obviously, they don't, want, they don't want spoiled children any more than anybody else wants spoiled children. But it will be for a three-year-old. A three-year-old, there will be discipline. There will be scolding. But you're sure it's not going to be harsh. After all, it's hardly more than a baby. But there will be some discipline. By the time they get to 10, 12, 14 years old, then they have no, no problem at all about swacking or bringing out, the, bringing out the stick and giving a good walloping, if necessary. So we'll leave that one aside. But we're at the stage now, in that first stage that we explored Saturday. That's nurturing, cuddling, soothing, singing to the baby. It's just soothing. There was really no element of discipline there. Balance, yes. But discipline, okay, mind, shape to, be quiet, maintain continuity, no. It was just relaxation. Relaxation without getting dopey, spaced out, dull, and so forth, right? But now today, and I don't want to talk much more, I want to go into the meditation, 
But now today we will introduce an element of discipline, but we'll do it in a very gentle way, a soft way, as if we're, we're beginning to discipline a three-year-old. Okay? For this, we will be developing the stability without the loss of relaxation. We want to get into the flow of it, getting more familiar with the practice, more adept in the practice. You'll find that you're developing greater and greater stability, and that is not succumbing to coarse excitation. So if you want to go back to the manual, go back to the attention revolution, it unpacks all of this. But coarse excitation, what's that? You completely forget the object. Okay? You're, you're totally caught up in mind wandering. Okay? Well, as you get into the flow of this practice we're about to explore, you'll have 10 seconds and 15 seconds and 30 seconds and a minute where you just feel you're in a flow. That is, you're not totally disengaging from the object. And as you get there, not by bearing down and getting tighter and tighter and then exhausting yourself, but letting that stability arise out of a sense of ease, of looseness, of comfort, right? Kind of letting go of the turbulent energy that gives rise to all of that coarse excitation. When you're getting that stability coming out of a sense of ease, of looseness, relaxation, then you can find, you will find, that not only is your stability being enhanced without depleting or diminishing your relaxation, but in fact you'll find a synergy coming in. Because, of course, when you maintain a flow of mindfulness, you know, unbroken for a half a minute, a minute, a minute and a half, that's soothing. That's peaceful. Rather than being broken up and pulled this way and pulled that way and yak, 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 that's not peaceful, right? So the more continuity you have there, if you're getting there the righteous way, and that is by relaxation and not just by bearing down, then you'll find the synergy kicks in. And the synergy is very sweet. And that is that stability, that inner calm, that freedom from coarse excitation that will go on for you know, seconds and seconds at a time, that itself starts to allow you to go more relaxed. More relaxed, because it's peaceful, it's serene. But then as you're more relaxed, then you're releasing the turbulence that's giving rise to the coarse excitation, which then enhances your stability, which is more peaceful, which makes you more calm, relaxed, and so forth then you're in a real nice synergy. Okay? So we're not talking about vividness yet. We're not talking about enhancing vividness. That's going to come tomorrow. We're moving along pretty quickly here. But for today, just this. We're going to be focusing downwards, downwards to the abdomen, releasing. And one final point, because I want to give you a little bit of preview, even though you've probably heard this by podcast. But something that I've learned not from the Theravada tradition, for all of its extraordinary excellence when it comes to mindfulness of breathing, I think it's the best, but there's one element I'm introducing into the practice that I'm taking from the Dzogchen tradition, Dzogchen Shamatha. And that is this oscillation, this oscillation. The oscillation or the, the, alter, the alternating, more of an alternating, and that is as the breath flows in, that's a time to arouse the attention. So I'll take as, as, as to give you a cartoon, okay? Cecil will be my object of, my object of mindfulness, okay? So I can show it. But so like this. That's my best cartoon. Sorry for the folks on the podcast. Can't do it. 
what I was showing here, though, was at no point that I, I don't think I looked stressed out. It was just more of an alertness, an interest, a real focus, an arousal of interest. So I'm now trying to put it into words for people on the podcast, but I was trying to demonstrate visually. It's kind of like a real interest, like, whoa, he's really paying attention to me, right? Like that. But then, without going bleary-eyed, without spacing out or getting dull or just imploding, kind of a softening, a softening, but still remaining engaged. And then arousing again, and then softening again. But throughout that alternating of the arousal and then the release, remaining in touch, remaining engaged. And there's something about this. I think it's really quite extraordinary. It's a stroke of brilliance upon the great originators of the Dzogchen tradition that bringing in that fluctuation, that alter alternation. I think, I suspect if we check with somebody who's worked out in a, in a, in a gym a lot, you know, with, with exercise machines, I think there's going to be a strong parallel there. That you're not just maxing out all the time, nor are you just flopping around in the gym like a jellyfish. There's going to be some alternating of really working hard and then softening and working hard and softening. I mean, a lot of machines work that way, of the exercise machines. And that's what we're doing here. But a final point on this, and that is we're bringing to the session a long habituation, if not an addiction to, doing. We want to be doing something, right? That's why even when we go for a walk, the mind just immediately goes into chatter mode because we're just used to doing something, and the mind goes, oh, there's nothing to do? Oh, cha-cha-cha-cha, and it starts going into rumination. Rather than trying to just shut that down and say, okay, now don't do anything. Just watch the breath. Just be quiet. A bit too heavy-handed. What we want to avoid here is the stern parent syndrome. This is giving us something to do. Not much, but it's giving us something to do. When the breath flows in, do something. That's a time to really, as I was focusing on Cecil, that's a time to really focus. Okay, now I'm focusing on the tactile sensations at the abdomen. The abdomen expands as I breathe in. Okay, I'm really focusing. I'm giving it my best shot. I'm not tensing up, but I'm really attending closely. Oh, the breath is flowing out now. Ah, time to loosen up. Any thoughts that come up, just let them go. Release, release. Time to chill, but still remain in touch with, mindfully engaged with the sensations of the breath. So there's something very sweet, but also just very effective and having this arousal, but then not too long, as soon as the breath flows out, ah, then release. Arousal, and then ah, release. And every time you're arousing the attention, you're overcoming that propensity for, for laxity, dullness, spacing out, because you're really paying attention. But every time you ease off, you relax, you're just releasing thoughts, then you're letting go of that energy behind all the excitation, the agitation, the distracted mind. Okay, you're let, just letting the steam off. So it's ah, kind of relaxing, soothing, almost like going back to phase one. Okay? So that alternating back and forth can really be very, very effective. Uh, and so we have Padma Sambhava to thank for that and Dujom Lingba, many great Dzogchen masters. So it's a little bit of a preview. So now I can use perhaps a bit fewer words while we're actually doing the practice. This one is perfectly good in the supine position. So either way, supine position, sitting position, Please find a posture that's comfortable for you right now.
since we are so habitually caught up in the head, caught up in a network of thoughts. We always begin by the sense of the sense of descent, of letting awareness come down all the way to the ground and coming to rest in a witnessing mode, quiet, observing the bare tactile sensations of the earth element. Then letting your awareness rise up and fill the space of the body as you settle your body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant. Now this next phase, too, turns out to be imperative. It's really essential, indispensable, to learn how to breathe, which is to say to learn how to let the breathing flow unimpededly, effortlessly, smoothly. As you release control, even while attending closely to the sensations of the breath, It's really a type of egoless breathing, letting the body breathe without interference. the key here is the out-breath of relaxing in your body, releasing the breath and releasing thoughts with every out-breath. And the key within the key is to relax all the way through the end of the out-breath. After you've released the breath as fully as you can, still releasing, without 
pushing the air out, just letting it all go. And then simply allowing the next breath to flow in. Relaxing so deeply as, as if the body is being breathed. third phase of setting the mind at ease is more like giving a sense of self-assurance, assuring yourself you really don't need to think about anything for the next 20 minutes. You can just do the practice and it will be okay. The world can wait as you release your concerns about the future and past and let your awareness come to rest in stillness in the present moment. For a little while, let your awareness be diffuse, permeating the field of the body and attending to the sensations related to the breath, wherever they most distinctly arise within the somatic field. Emphasis on relaxation without losing clarity.
but keep your, your gaze soft and unfocused. Keep your visual awareness totally disengaged from the focus of mindfulness. And focus just your mental awareness downwards on the bare tactile sensations of the rise and fall of the abdomen with each in and out breath. No need to visualize the belly. No need to think about it. Just focus on the bare tactile sensations. and slip into this alternating mode, gently but clearly arousing your attention and focusing with each in-breath, and then deeply relaxing, releasing thoughts, letting go with every out-breath. But throughout that oscillation, to the best of your ability, maintain an ongoing flow of mindfulness, of the ongoing flow of sensations, of the rise and fall of the abdomen.
now we gently introduce a further element of discipline, a very simple method with the intention of replacing many wandering, vagrant thoughts with a few regular, simple thoughts. And this is, of course, counting the breaths. So experiment with it to see for yourself whether you find it helpful. The method that I suggest is at the very end of inhalation, just before the exhalation begins, mentally and very succinctly, count one. Allow the breath to flow out as you relax, release thoughts. The breath flows in as you arouse your attention. Until you come to the end of the inhalation and you count two. Let the thoughts of counting be staccato, not dragged out during the course of exhalation. Let them be just like punctuation marks in the flow of the in and out breath. And between the counts, let your mind be as conceptually quiet as possible. You may count one through ten, one through ten, or you may continue counting as you wish. Experiment to see if you find it helpful to gently but persistently subdue and calm the flow of obsessive, compulsive thinking. With the faculty of mindfulness, we seek to maintain an undistracted flow of engaged attention without forgetfulness. But 
Also apply your faculty of introspection, monitoring your body, monitoring the breath, monitoring your mind. Periodically check up on the body to see that tension is not mounting in the face or the eyes. Now and again, check up on the breath to see that it's flowing as effortlessly as if you were deep asleep. Monitor the flow of mindfulness, recognizing as swiftly as possible when you have been carried away, caught up in distracting thoughts. And as soon as you note this, relax, release whatever captivated your attention, and return to the meditative object. Shamatha always entails a flow of knowing, of cognizance. So with introspection, if you note that you're becoming somewhat vague, spaced out, then refresh your interest and focus clearly. Re-engage with the meditative object. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
So, I'd like to begin by responding publicly, that is to all of you, to two questions that came up in one-on-one -on -one conversations, but I think are relevant to all of us here. The first has to do with some, uh, a suggestion I made a couple of days ago about what to do at the end of the day when you've finished everything for the day, brushed your teeth and all of that, you've gotten under the covers, you're ready to fall asleep. And as you recall, I suggested go into the Shavasana, the corpse position, practice full body mindfulness of breathing, the phase one of mindfulness of breathing, and continue practicing um, until you fall asleep. And one person made a very legitimate, or expressed a very legitimate qualm, and that is if you do that, isn't it likely you'll start to get into a habit of kind of meditating, but kind of being fuzzy, and kind of, so there's a verb, it's called sleepitate, you know, right in the middle of sleeping and meditation. And couldn't that be a really bad habit? And that's a very, very good point. And so I want to give a bit more finesse to that. I didn't make a point uh, two nights ago that really does need to be made. And that is, if you would like to do this, number one, it creates a very nice hiatus between your activities of the day and falling asleep. It's a nice kind of interlude of quiet, of calm, of restfulness. So it's a very nice way to wind down whatever your level of activity was before getting into bed. So I stand by it. I think it's a very good practice. But it's not a good practice to kind of blend shamatha with habitual dullness. You don't want to make that a habit. So here's what I suggest, and it's rather simple, and that is if you like to do that, this full body, so we call it the infirmary, the infirmary, resting in the shavasana, full body awareness, mindfulness of breathing, coming down to the earth element, and big emphasis on releasing with every out-breath. So that's the infirmary. You can practice that, just releasing, 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 until you find, and it may be quite a distinct kind of shift a sense of sleepiness coming in, kind of a veil of wooziness, of grogginess, just sleepiness coming in. And as soon as you see that coming in, like a little kitten coming into your mind, a little black kitten, kind of just getting a little bit vague, when you see that, you're really starting to slip off into sleep. And so your dullness is clearly coming in. At that point, then mentally, metaphorically, snap your fingers and say, that's the end of the shamatha session. You were practicing shamatha, phase one shamatha. But now, instead of trying to balance deeper, deeper relaxation while maintaining clarity, you need some sleep. So this means you are going to allow you know, your mind to fall asleep, in which case, then just mentally make a break. Say, okay, that's the end of the shamatha session, and then switch posture. Use the shavasana only for meditation. Right? And I think Kim will stand by me, even at the end of yoga, that is a type of meditation. It's not just a physical posture but you're really in a meditative mode after doing your other asanas. This is one more asana, but to be done in a meditative way. So likewise, use the shavasana for nothing other than meditation. So when you see that you're really getting sleepy and you want to just go ahead and fall asleep, then shift your posture into whatever posture you normally use for sleeping, but not the shavasana. 
So that's one point. Okay? And then it keeps nice and clean, and you are still associating that posture with meditation and not kind of associating it with meditation, but kind of associating it with just getting groggy and falling asleep. Okay? So a nice clean break. A next point, and this is bound to be relevant time and again for many of you over the next eight weeks or so, and that is by doing, engaging a lot of shamatha practice. Uh, some of you may find on occasion that you have a hard time sleeping, just even falling asleep, or you wake up, and then you're awake for quite a long time, or what have you. So in short, insomnia. Insomnia. It's, uh, this practice is so simple, but it's so nuanced and has so many surprises in it. On the one hand, if you're practicing moving into the mode of five, six, seven, eight, nine hours a day of meditation, of shamatha meditation, rooted in relaxation, calm, non-discursive, very relaxing the body, soothing the mind, if you're doing that for a number of hours each day, then it would kind of make sense that you won't need to sleep as much. Because during the daytime, you're not wearing out your body. You're not exerting so much effort. You're not burning off so many calories, that's for sure. And so on the one hand, you might just need less sleep. That's fine. But it's not that simple. Especially as you go into week two and three and four and your mind is settling down and getting more into, you know, going more deeply into the practice. Especially in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state, but actually all three of the methods that we're exploring, you will find very likely that even as you're relaxing and you're letting go, in that porousness, that softness, that more opening of the mind, then there's a term from Tibetan we translate as eruption. You may experience eruptions of memories coming up that you hadn't thought about for a long time. Or they could be desires, or they could be emotions, but things that are really upsetting and that they disturb, they arouse, they throw you off balance, right? And so that can happen too. So on the one hand, you're calming and soothing. On the other hand, you're opening up a hornet's nest of all kinds of things, surprises that you know you, you may, maybe you didn't even think were there. And that can occur not only during meditation, but it can also occur as you're falling asleep, still the volcano Kisama erupting, and you may just find a lot of thoughts coming up, or even if not a lot of thoughts, just a lot of brightness. And brightness does not necessarily imply agitation. It just means you're lying in bed and you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. You know, the mind really clear and like, sleep? Who, me? You know? And you may just find sleep isn't happening. So what to do? What I would suggest is just go right back into the Shavasana and right back to the infirmary and just go into that relaxation mode, that releasing, so I won't repeat myself all over again, but just do that practice and remain there just practicing in that way until you do feel sleepy. And if you don't feel sleepy for a while, then, then based upon my own experience, lying there in the Shavasana and not fretting, not being anxious, not worrying about, oh, I'm not getting enough sleep. Oh, I'm hey, tomorrow, when do you have to, you know, when's, your, when's your next duty? Can you make it here at 9 o'clock? That's all we ask, you know. And so it's not like you've got a big heavy workload tomorrow. It's like more shamatha, you know. And so set the alarm for 8.45 and come cruising in here, brush your teeth and come in, you know. And so you don't really need to work, worry about how much work you have the next day. And if the next day you're a bit sleepy, then take a nap. That's what we're here for. This is just all for meditation practice. But my point here is that if you're resting there 
without fretting, without worrying, without trying, pushing yourself to fall asleep, which of course is an oxymoron. If you can just relax and say, hey, the mind is really bright, or there's a lot of energy coming up, and just go into the infirmary and just keep on relaxing, relaxing, releasing, releasing, then even if you're remaining like that for an hour, two, or three hours, however long it may be, based upon my experience, an hour of doing that is about as good as half an hour of sleeping in terms of just getting the rest you need. Now, if you toss and turn, and you're fretting, and you're anxious, and you keep on worrying, I'm not falling asleep, ah, oh, then you're wasted. Then that's not good at all. You, you know, may as well run around the block. Okay? So that's what I would suggest, is just keep on going back to that, and just allow the eruptions to rise and flow on through without getting caught up in their vortex, and just keep on relaxing and releasing all the way through. Okay? So we'll be meeting on a weekly basis. If it comes up, then I can maybe say more about that. But that's not at all uncommon, both things. So try that on for size. So what I'd like to do then, we still have a good deal of time, questions or comments, especially about the last couple of days. I mean, if we have a lull at the end and there's no questions coming up, then we can go into forays and more theoretical issues and all of that. But most important for our eight weeks here, from my perspective, is that you all have a lot of clarity, growing confidence, familiarity with the practices above all, and secondarily, the theories that go along with the practice. I'm not quite sure. And Anna. Anna, yes, Anna. sorry, I should have mm-hmm. said my name. Um, I'm not quite sure about clarity. Uh, I think if you, yep. if you, sorry. everybody, if you hold the microphone as if it's a um, oh, well, well, ice cream well, well. cone that you're about to lick. <laughs> All right, now, yeah. That works. I am not quite sure about clarity. Uh-huh. Because I've got a certain way of uh, concentrating on the breath. I'm not sure if it's clear. Uh-huh. Uh, what do we mean by clarity? I'm not going to answer that today. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's what tomorrow is for. <laughs> Sorry. Right? No, no, no problem at all. But all in good time. And, but I, I actually say this with, you know, some seri- with joviality and seriousness at the same time. You know, we want clarity. We want clarity. Who, who wants to be dull? But it's very easy to be shooting off for clarity without having given sufficient time to the stability. We want stability, but then without giving sufficient time to relaxation. So step by step, there's a real sequence here. Yes, but it's not that. Sorry, Alan, if I interrupt you. It's not that. It's more than I have a certain way of looking at my breath. I'm used to it. And let's say it's brownish. It's brownish. It's brownish. Uh Now... um, because you put so, so much emphasis on, uh, you know, clarity, I say perhaps I should see it like um, light, uh, with a light behind or something like that. Like maybe chocolate, milk <laughs> chocolate, <laughs> rather than dark chocolate. <laughs> um, thus far, I've hardly even mentioned clarity. Of course, I will. So let's again, let's postpone that until tomorrow. Okay. Because Thank tomorrow you. will, of course, come up to the nostrils. And we'll be looking for the synergy, that is the interface, the mutual interface between, among all three, the relaxation, stability, and vividness, or clarity. That's for tomorrow. Okay? Sorry. But overall, when you say brown, uh, I think this is a case of synesthesia. Synesthesia. uh, Where one is withdrawing from one sensory field and imposing it on another. Um, 
And it's quite an in interesting thing. There's a lot of brain science behind it. In fact, I'll be at a conference next October with a world expert, Ramachandran. He's a world expert on, uh, on synesthesia from the, from the neurocorrelates. But setting that aside, in this practice of mindfulness breathing, I will address this part right now. In this practice of mindfulness breathing, we're really making a point of focusing just on what's being presented to our bare tactile sensation. Tactile sensation doesn't pick up brown. You know? If, for example, if, if you had to close your eyes and you put your finger on some pudding and some chocolate and ask which one's brown, I don't think you could tell. You know? Unless you just think it's chocolate, it's chocolate. And so this is a case of taking something from the visual domain and superimposing it on the tactile. There's nothing wrong with that in principle, but in this practice, we're seeing the tactile as tactile. And that is, it's bare attention. It's kind of seeking to remove as much as possible the conceptual overlays, the associations, and so forth, and just take it naked. Just the naked, raw, bare, tactile sensations of the breath. And that's where it will turn out to be most subtle, and that will relate to vividness or clarity with respect to mindfulness of breathing. But that's going to be the topic for tomorrow. Anything else coming up? Yes, please. Lakshmi. Yes, Lakshmi. It's a question on oscillation, uh, on the technique of oscillation. Oscillation, yes. Um, for me, relaxation is like a sense of letting go of my body and relaxing all the muscles. Yeah. If, for example, I'm concentrating on sensation in the tummy and I'm breathing out and thinking relaxation, I actually tend to lose the object. Like I just go into the relaxing of the whole body yeah. and it kind of, I feel like it breaks the concentration rather than mm -hmm. deepens my focus or, you know, cuts the discursive thoughts. I understand. Yeah. And this is why I gave the, the cartoon focusing on Cecil and that is this relaxation. We'll come back to this again and again, especially when we come in several days to the shamatha without a sign or awareness of awareness. There it's very explicit. Padmasambhava teaches it. Other great teachers teach it as well. Of uh, this total release. I won't jump ahead to that so much, but right now, the relaxation is a loosening, but not letting go entirely. Okay? So it's more of a soft attentiveness rather than really coming out with kind of a bit greater intensity. I mean, frankly, that's what it is. Really a real alertness, a really a stronger arousal, a stronger engagement. This is what we're doing during the inhalation. But as the breath goes out, it's not that we're just kind of diffusing into, diffusing into space, but rather just a softer touch, but still remaining engaged. So you're, you're feeling that so the breath is coming out. There's a looseness, a lightness around it, even while you remain almost as if you're like two hands enfolded with each other. Your, your, your mindfulness is still enfolded with the sensations at the belly, right? Just in a softer way. So it's a bit more intensive, a bit more intense, a bit more focused, and then softer. As I'm, as I'm focusing on your, on your face right now, with, you can see with a lot of interest. But then when I go like this, then you see I'm still, we, we've not lost touch. I mean, it's eye to eye. We're still doing that. But you see it's a lot softer gaze, right? Now I'll show you the slippery slope because I like doing the cartoon. And so here it is soft, right? 
it's soft. I mean, I'm not really giving you the steely eye. I'm not really bearing down. Soft, but clearly engaged, not wandering. And now here's the slippery slope into laxity, dullness, and sleepiness. <laughs> there was a big difference there, right? So that's when I kind of lost you. It's like, bye-bye. <laughs> and the Tibetan term for that is jingwa. And jingwa, I'm translating as laxity. I think it's a good translation. But literally, it means to sink. But not sinking down, it's sinking in. So in a way, as I tend to, whether it's your face or the sensations of my abdomen, I'm coming out, I'm engaging. So remember the rope of mindfulness, it's often called, like taking the wild elephant of the mind and with the rope of mindfulness, attaching it to a firmly implanted stake in the ground to, to tame this wild elephant. And mindfulness is the, is the rope, right? So whenever we're practicing shamatha with a sign, that means it has an object, that means it has a reference, has a vector to it. It's attending from there, here to there, even if it's to thoughts and so, so forth. Then, in a way, we're coming out. Awareness is coming out and saying, almost like a lion coming out of its cage and saying, or out of its cave. And, hmm, it's looking out, right? And so, whenever there's, there is that motion outwards to or engaging with a meditative object, right? Whereas when laxity or this jingwa sets in, then you saw, as, and I won't do the cartoon again, but you saw that right, right, right now, my attention is, as it were, connected to your face by, with the rope of mindfulness. Clearly, you can see I'm engaged. But then when I did that cartoon, then it was like the, the rope got cut, and there was a sinking, not down, but in, an imploding into awareness, and then it's just falling asleep. As awareness withdraws from all appearances, all objects, falls into itself, and we just fall asleep, right? So that's what we don't want. It's very soft, but it's still engaged. Okay? Good. And this, this is a skill. We won't master it the first time, but that's where the skill lies. Good. Anything else coming up with respect to this practice so far? Yes, please. Uh, uh, I've been Your name first? Joan. Joan. I've been finding myself analyzing too much uh, like the progress during the meditation. Uh-oh. That's and a good habit to break today. <laughs> <laughs> and if, like, I relax a little bit further than I had before, yeah. then I find myself saying, hey, you're at a new point, and I think that's bad, yeah, because now I realize it, and I'm not relaxed anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it would be like um, playing a beautiful piece of music. When I, was, when I was young, I really aspired to be able to play Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. I thought it was one of the most beautiful piano pieces ever, the first movement. And I really wanted to be, be able to play that. And it's not that difficult, so I could after some time. But imagine when, you know, after a couple of years of, of practicing, you can play it, and then as it's going along, you say, wow, this sounds really good. Yep, this is really good, right on Beethoven. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, kind of ruins it. <laughs> and so likewise, when it's going, well, you don't need the, the, the applause. You don't need the commentary. And that is, when you're doing it, just as much as possible, be right there in the moment and just doing it. There is a time for assessing overall how your practice is developing, how it's stagnating, how it's going backwards, what have you. Clearly, we're intelligent. We're not meditating for no reason. But when you're right in the midst of it, as with the Moonlight Sonata or any other piece of music, that's just one for me, but while you're playing it, every, every note there, you just want to be right there with the note. You're marrying the note. You're dancing with the note. 
You're not going to the next note. You're not thinking about the past notes. You're just going from note to note and noting the fluidity, the movement, the obviously the melody, right? But that melody comes by attending very closely from moment to moment to moment. And at the end, when you've struck the final chord, then you can take some satisfaction. Right? That's at the end of the session. So as much as possible, leave the whole notion of progress, which is really like handling a snake. There is such a thing as progress. It's not to be the nine. There are nine stages to shamatha. That is the natural evolution of attention through this practice. So it doesn't go away. It's not a bad thing. Um, it's actually true. That's, that's what happens. Uh, but the nine stages and all of that, those are stages really worth reflecting upon, understanding, using them skillfully, right, in between sessions. But when you're practicing, banish all, no, all notion of nine stages, banish all notions of progress, and just from breath to breath, just be there for the whole in-breath, the whole out-breath. Keep it as simple, as non-discursive as possible. Having said that, I'll give one exception, and that is in the early phases of the practice, it may be helpful to give a little bit of internal coaching a bit of internal coaching. So do you recall if the mind becomes agitated? With what faculty do you recognize the agitation? With the mind? Too vague. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, not with your elbow, but more specifically, which, with which faculty do you recognize that your attention has strayed? Yeah, so good. This is, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I am quizzing you, but this is exactly the point. There's only one right answer there. It's not mine because that's too broad. It's introspection. It's introspection, right? So it's good to learn, have a very crisp, sharp, immediate knowledge that is right on your fingertips. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is this faculty that enables you to sustain a flow of attention, deliberate focus, voluntary attention, without forgetfulness, without distraction. It allows for the continuity. That's what mindfulness is. Introspection is that faculty that enables you to monitor not only your mind, but also the breathing, your body, and so forth, but to recognize as quickly as possible when your mind has fallen into either excitation or laxity. So you're monitoring now and then the flow of mindfulness with introspection, and you recognize now retrospectively, oh, I was just carried away by some thought. What do you do then? Yeah, that's the wrong answer. It's the wrong answer. Yeah, and that's, and it's, I know, it's hard to remember everything I'm saying when you're right in the midst of a guided meditation and you're not taking notes, okay? So absolutely do not be embarrassed. This is exactly why I'm asking the question. And that is, remember, relax, release, and return. The, first, the, the natural instinct, when you, have, when you see that your attention has wandered, is to yank it back to glue it back. Hey, come back here. You stupid mind. How many times do I have to tell you? Jeez, won't you ever learn I've been here for two hours already? Come on. Yeah, you're pissing me off. You know? That's the natural thing. It's a natural thing to clamp down like a stern parent. How many times do I need to tell you? Oh, good deep voice. Scare the child. Right? But that's not the way we do it in meditation. At least not the way we do it effectively. The first thing is to relax. Whatever captured attention, loosen up. Loosen up, relax. With that softness, now this is skillful means, with that softness, 
then release whatever captivated your attention. Just let it go. Like releasing a dead leaf into the, into the breeze and just watching it float away. So the second one is release. And then, now that you've released it, now what? You kind of caught an empty space. Oh, yeah, return. So what I just did was gave some coaching. Some coaching, right? And so when you're not thoroughly familiar with this, I hope in a week or two weeks, if I ask you, with what faculty you to monitor your flow of mindfulness, you'll say introspection, like you know your middle name. Boom. If you see your attention has become agitated, distracted, what do you do? Relax, release, return. Boom. You'll know it right there. But until it's spontaneous, until it's just effortless, you just intuitively know. Like, I'm sure you know how to ride a bicycle. When you're riding a bicycle, you don't need to coach yourself, do you? Now the left foot, now the right foot. Don't tip over to the left, whoop, don't tip over. You don't need to do that, because you know it so well. So when you get into the flow of the, of the shamatha practice, then the whole need for internal coaching will evaporate. Because you just know this is mindfulness, ag- agitation, ex- uh, laxity, introspection here. You'll know it, and you'll know it without coaching. But until you know that, then, to go back to the notes, maybe review the notes or review the book, that's what the, the meditation manual is there for, the attention revolution, familiarize yourself with it so that when you're actually in the session, then on occasion, it can be very useful to coach yourself. Ah, that's, that's, that's called distraction. That's distraction. What do I do? Relax. Okay, got it. Release. Got it. Now return. Okay. So some internal coaching in the early phases can be very useful. Okay? Good. Good. Anything more coming up about the practice so far? Yes, please. Marcus. Uh, Yeah, Marcus. Um, Talking about relaxation, there are certain points sometimes when I feel the body, the mind almost separates from the body, uh-huh. and it's just watching the body kind of breathe. Yeah. Is this, is that on the right track, or is that kind of going off? Yeah. Uh, to have equality of spaciousness in the mind, this is actually the first quality we're cultivating. Call it spaciousness, call it looseness, relaxation, ease, just the opposite of constricted, tight, tense, stressed out. Uh, to be able to view, the, to view the, the breathing process or the sensations of the breathing uh, from this kind of spacious but nevertheless engaged manner. That's very good. That's very good. That it does, spaciousness could imply kind of a softness, not getting wrapped up, not getting tight, not getting hyper-concentrated. But as I was focusing on Lakshmi's face or Cecil's face, engaged but not getting bound up in. So this is fine. You'll want to watch for the extreme, though, and that is with the spaciousness. You're spacious, spacious, and then you get spaced out. So then it kind of just diffuses away, and then you're losing that flow of knowing. So this point can't be overemphasized. And that is in any type of shamatha practice whatsoever, any method, doesn't matter, at any phase in the practice, the complete beginning, the middle, or the culmination, the practice of shamatha always entails a flow of knowing, a flow of knowing. So Buddha Gosa, in his great path of purification in the 4th, 5th century, said one of the qualities of mindfulness is not floating. Not floating. Well, that's what I did with Lakshmi's face when I went showed the laxity. I was engaged, and then it was really like, you just saw me kind of start, start to float, kind of drift off, and then imploding inwards. 
So that's what you don't want. But if you can remain a soft touch, a gentle touch, but remain engaged, even with the quality of spaciousness, that's just fine. But with that flow of knowing, that is really crucial. Okay? Is it completely clear? Yes. Okay, good. Anything else coming up? Yes, please. Quinn. Hi, this is Quinn. I have a tendency to feel a need to spatially locate the sensations that I'm focusing on. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit about the difference between bare awareness and, and visualizations. Yeah. Because sometimes they can be confused. Yeah. The visualization, of course, is a mental superimposition upon a sensory field. Okay? So I've often done this, and I'll do it now very briefly. But right now, and I'm going to keep this really brief, right now I can, if I wish, visualize, and I do wish, I can visualize Mickey Mouse right on top of your head, kind of like your crown of Mickey Mouse. I usually ask people to do that to me, but now I'm going to do it to you. So I can see him there, his big eyes, a big happy smile. And so I'm superimposed on something on a visual field. So there are photons coming in here. But what I'm visualizing, superimposing, there has nothing to do with photons. It's a mental superimposition, right? And so as I can do that in a silly way, by visualizing Mickey Mouse on, your, on the top of your head, likewise, when I'm attending to the sensations of the breath at the abdomen, I may visualize the belly, getting bigger, getting smaller, rising, falling, rising, falling. But this is now kind of I'm multitasking. Shamatha is, shamatha pertains to this, so here's something else to memorize. Shamatha, what is shamatha? It's a, it's a matrix or variety of methods. There are meditative methods designed to do what? To achieve samadhi. So I've used two Sanskrit terms. Shamatha is about method. Now we do speak of achieving shamatha, but we'll leave that aside for the time being. Overall, you're practicing shamatha, you are engaging a certain method, and the point of it is to develop, to achieve samadhi, and samadhi is a unification, a coming, a coalescing, a unification of the mind. Not necessarily really tight, it may be vast, but nevertheless, it's very composed, it's unified, it's coherent, and that's the samadhi, right? But the samadhi then means one-pointed. Now, the one point may be all sentient beings, but it's one, all sentient beings collectively, whereas it's not going back between your face and Guy's face, your face, Guy's face, Cecil's face, yours face. This is multitasking. That's not the nature of samadhi. And so what we'd like to do is not be switching back and forth between a mental image and the tactile sensations. Okay? Either one is, is legitimate, but in this practice, so far, the mindfulness of breathing, we're trying to focus just on the tactile sensations of the breath without adulteration, without any additives of mental imagery, visualization, and so forth. So it's like using a scalpel to scrape away associations, labels, concepts, mental images, all of that, and just go bare. And where, where the value of this, that it's not just tradition or a doctrine or something like that, but has purely a pragmatic value, is going to be most evident starting tomorrow, perhaps, in response to Anna's question about clarity. And that is, tomorrow, when we're focusing on the sensations of the breath right at the apertures of the nostrils, as you go deeper and deeper into the practice, those sensations, as the volume of the breath subsides or decreases, the sensations of the passage of the breath will become subtler and subtler and subtler. As they do so, they will challenge you, if we anthropomorphize them here, they will challenge you 
to respond with increasing vividness, greater acuity, high resolution of attention, because you're seeking to remain engaged with subtler and subtler and subtler sensations. Well, that's a great boon, because now you're clicking into that synergy of increasing subtlety of attention while maintaining the stability of attention and while maintaining the relaxation, the ease, the looseness. And then the real magic comes in when you find that not only are you increasing vividness without losing stability or relaxation, but in fact, the synergy kicks in. And that is, as you become more and more subtle, frankly, it gets more interesting. There's a direct correlation there. Greater subtlety of attention just makes the object, whatever it may be, more interesting. But as it's more interesting, of course, almost by definition, it tends to, tends to engage the attention more. That is, we can sustain focus on something we find interesting, not so easy to sustain focus on something we don't find interesting. But by simply by enhancing the clarity or the acuity of your attention and sustaining that, it gets more interesting, which means it's easier to maintain continuity because it's interesting. But now as the continuity goes and you're less interrupted, peppered, scattered by thoughts intruding, you're maintaining more of a more of a continuity. That's restful. That's sweet. That's kind of cool. I could get used to this. And that's where the stability kicks back and enhances or synergistically supports the relaxation. But as the relaxation goes deeper, it's easier to maintain stability, and stability gets better, then you can maintain a better flow of the vividness. The vividness. Now, I say all of that. It wasn't just rambling. And that is, that happens if and only if you're really single-pointedly focusing on the increasingly subtle, tactile sensations. But if you are, for example, just focusing on one, two, three. In other words, you're practicing mindfulness of, of counting. Now, it doesn't get subtle. That's just one, two, three. I mean, it's, it doesn't go anywhere. It just stays at a very coarse level, which means it won't arouse greater vividness at all. It'll leave you with kind of a clunky level, mediocre level of stability, but no encouragement for vividness at all. And that's for counting, but it also goes for visualizing the nose, visualizing the belly, visualizing anything. That won't get subtler and subtler. That'll say more or less as it was. It's the tactile sensations that get subtler and subtler, which means that's what arouses greater and greater vividness. So we want to scrape away, peel off everything other than those raw, bare, tactile sensations, because that's where the juice is. That's where you go subtler and subtler, and you really go into depth in the practice. Okay? You'll find big ramifications when you go to the next practice of settling the mind where then you're able to detect subtler and subtler and subtler mental events, both very, very brief and qualitatively extremely subtle. And that has its own boon in that practice. But we'll get to that in a few days. Okay. All clear? Yeah. Yes, that's all. <clears throat> so I'm finding that the combination of Shavasana position, the supine position for meditation, and then upright to be beneficial. To, mm -hmm. But I do find there's a qualitative difference between the two in terms of my practice. Yeah. Um, in the supine position, it does just naturally become groggier or Groggy, less, yeah. less yeah. lucid. Yeah. Um, and in, in the sitting up position, the, the revert, the, I guess the corollary is slightly less relaxed. Yep. So totally natural. Can you address how to balance those two or bring them together? Yep. Number one, that's just the way it is. <laughs> All right? 
And having said that, this is a trainable skill. But it's completely natural. That, of course, how would you be as, as, as relaxed when you're sitting upright and keeping, you know, sitting at attention? Sternum drawn up, spine straight. How are you going to be as relaxed sitting like that as you are when you're emulating a corpse? You know, well, not likely. But as you become more and more accustomed to it, and you let, once again, that kind of synergy come in here, and that is when you're in the supine position, of course, you're going for total body relaxation. I mean, no balance at all. Just flat out, totally relaxed. But then, with a clarity. So then it, it's a subtle effort. But maintaining that engaged quality, that interest quality, that this is, this is a meditative session. This is not taking time off. This is not a break. This is it. This is the show right now. And see if you can just develop this skill. It's a habit. It's a skill, a talent. But even when your body is totally relaxed, that you're so, so into it, so committed, so engaged, so focused, that you, that you find, in fact, hey, this is as good as when I was sitting upright. Right? It just comes with practice. But as you're venturing into that, where you're so deeply relaxed physically, but then finding, hey, you can maintain a better, better, better quality of clarity while still deeply relaxed, then, and, and Kim can show you this, um, it is important when coming out of the Shavasana to come out very smoothly. Don't jerk yourself up. Roll out like an eel. You know, like something really smooth, like, like you've got no spine. Just roll out. That's the way I was taught. And so you, you never have a kind of abrupt discontinuity of now seizing up the muscles. Rolling out. And if you roll right out of that and come into the sitting position, then you may find that I just right there, it felt like I was putting a, putting a, uh, a coat on a rack. When I, just right there. I just like... And the sleeves of the coat just go... All the muscles that were not needed just said, oh, good, bye. And, it, and only the muscles that were needed to sit upright. They're the only ones. But it is balanced. You're not having to go this way or that way. You're trying to sit as erect as possible, frankly, so it can be as easy as possible. Because there's a symmetry there. So one side doesn't have to support the other side. They're really actually supporting each other. So with as little effort as possible, you're sitting like a really bucka meditator, you know, first-rate meditator, sitting very upright, not stiff, of course, but sitting very upright, but with as little physical exertion as possible, which means you're maintaining kind of like, wow, this is at least half as good, maybe two-thirds as good in terms of sheer relaxation as when I was in the supine, so I really saw what it's like to deeply relax there, and here I'm doing a good approximation of it. But then when you're here, of course, this is a natural pose, suggests attentiveness, I'm sitting at attention. So then you can be pushing the envelope, you know, or, or getting a bit sharper for clarity. And as you go, and then if you are sensing that greater clarity in the sitting position, and then you allow yourself to go to the supine position, then you may feel almost like dragging, you know, using a mouse to drag something across a screen. You may find that you can drag, if you go from the sitting right into the supine, you may find that you can drag the clarity of the sitting position right into the supine and not lose it. Because in principle, there's no reason you should. It's just habit, just association. So we're developing new associations, in which case both can work very, very well. And then you can do them for many hours a day with really no, I mean, no significant pain or discomfort if you master both.